listening to the Touch Em Up podcast. And on today's episode, we have Bellator versus Ryzen preview predictions and breakdown, which takes place on New Year's Eve, December 31st, 2022, from the Saitama Super Arena in Tokyo, Japan. So without any further ado, let's get this started and step into the ring. All right, I'm sorry if the intro wasn't perfect, it wasn't the best, but we're here to do what we got to do. We don't really do Bellator predictions on the podcast. A lot of the times we just focus on the UFC events, the predictions, the breakdowns, the post-event analysis, and so on and so forth. But I figured since we got a little four-week break from UFC, why don't we talk about this card? It's interesting. It's it's basically what every fan wants when it comes to mixed martial arts. The best from one promotion competing against the best from another. It's kind of like in the terms of WWF or WWE, it would be like brand warfare. You know, this is like Raw versus SmackDown. This is two different promotions. This would be like TNA going up against the WWE. I mean, back in the day, obviously not now because it's a different thing. But, you know, this is a very interesting concept. And it's two, it's two of the best promotions, the biggest MMA promotions in the world, bar the UFC and PFL, of course. You know, Ryzen and Bellator going at it with their best competitors from each weight class battling, you know, the the co-branded fights, I guess you could say. And it's really interesting. So I think it'd be cool to break these down. And we've never done Bellator predictions on the podcast before. Most of the time we keep it in the UFC. We have done PFL predictions, I think, once or twice on the podcast before. But yeah, I mean, we're going to get into it. It's probably not going to be the longest breakdowns. I don't have like Super, super extensive knowledge on these fights, but I did do my research. I watched all these fighters who are competing, and I feel like I have a good read on how these fights are going to play out. So we're going to get into it. And the first fight we're going to start with is going to be in the lightweight division. You have a battle between Koji Takeda, who comes out of Ryzen, comes into the fight with a record of 15-3, and three, going up against Godzi Rabadinov, who comes back with a record of 18-4-2. Um, Rabadinov is a... Khabib protege, you know, he he trains under Habib Nurmagomedov, and you know that's that says a lot, especially in MMA. Habib's guys don't lose very often. He, he's a really good coach. He was a phenomenal fighter, undefeated. And when you look at Robotinov, he he's a very technical striker, but he has his grappling that he can fall back on. Like he's not afraid to strike on the feet, and he's he's definitely able to use his grappling. He kind of reminds me of an Umar Nurmagomedov. From the UFC, like he he can throw some flashy stuff on the feet, but he's kind of more technical and a little less wild than a Umar Nurmagomedov. He likes to keep it with boxing range and and he likes to just find his openings, be patient, and then look to explode. But even when he explodes, his combinations are very tight. They're very crisp. They're very technical. Very good straight punches. His looping punches. He's not throwing himself off balance. They're all very tight. You know, tight, not wound, you know, tight, wound up and very technical in his approach. But he can also wrestle. He can use his grappling and use his takedowns as well. When you look at Koji Takeda, now, like I said, I, I don't follow Ryzen super, you know, consistently. So if you're not interested in my breakdowns on the Ryzen fighters, because I'm not super in depth with that promotion, then I understand. But I did do my research. So when I looked at Koji Takeda, he's a southpaw. Rabatinov is an orthodox fighter. Lead left foot in front, right foot in back. The power coming from the right hand. Takeda is very in and out. He uses a lot of lateral movement, a lot of in and out style. He uses a lot of fakes and feints. He's very like herky-jerky on the feet. That's what people used to call Dominic Cruz's movement. Now, I'm not comparing him 
to a Dominic Cruz because those are two completely different styles. But he's very in and out, loose, light on the feet, left and right, in and out. And he loves to use his grappling and wrestling. And he's not the most experienced on the feet. If I'm looking at the fight overall, I would say that Rabadinov is going to be the better striker. And he's going to want to keep this on the feet. But he has the wrestling top control and submission game to probably stifle a lot of the jujitsu aspects of Koji Takeda. But I think that Rabadinov is going to want to keep this on the feet. He's not going to want to use the wrestling and takedowns and grappling against Takeda because that's his wheelhouse. Takeda has a lot of submissions. You look at his record, um, the sure dog has been kind of going in and out today. So I'm hoping I can get this to work effectively while we're breaking these fights down. But Looking at the, let's see, is it going to let me not see? It's not working that great. Oh, let's see. I'm going to go to, we're just going to go to the fight calendar and then we'll pull it up again from there because it really is being slow today. Let's see. We'll go to, here we go. Ryzen 40, Bellator versus Ryzen. Let's look at Koji Takeda. So, let's see. Here we go. He's 15-3 and three overall in pro MMA is Koji Takeda. And when you break down his win percentage, he's got two wins by KOTKO, five by submission, and eight by decision. The guy isn't much of a finisher, but he's going to look for the submission realm of the game more than keeping it on the feet. The thing I've noticed with Takeda is he will switch stance. A lot of the times he switches from southpaw to orthodox in order to kind of reset his opponent and then go right back to southpaw. He'll switch to orthodox to kind of square up the opponent's hips, then go back to southpaw, line him up for the straight left hand, the right hook, or the inside and outside low kicks. Now, going up against an orthodox fighter in, uh, in his opponent, he's going to be looking to attack the inside leg. He's going to be looking to blast the legs of Rabotinov. He's going to be looking to, to step on the outside, right hook, left low kick, right hook, left kick to the body. He's going to be attacking those legs early and often. And a lot of the times when it comes to the striking on the feet, that's one of his better areas because he's going to use those kicks to one, figure out the distance you have on the feet, and then maybe feint that kick to use that to go into a takedown attempt. The way that Koji Takeda is going to win this fight is by getting the grappling exchanges going, by getting the top position, by getting the back of the opponent, by looking to flatten the opponent out and look for them to give up a limb, maybe go for an arm bar, look for a rear naked choke, work from the top position. And you'll see a lot of these fights throughout the night are pretty much grappler versus striker. It's not for every single one, but it's a really interesting theme that they have going on throughout the event. And that's why I think this event is so important in terms of the history of mixed martial arts and just how big this event is, even though I don't hear a ton of people talking about it. Koji Takeda can definitely get the advantages on the floor against his opponent. Like I 100% believe that he can have success if he looks to open up his submission game against Rabotinov. Like that's where his success is going to be. But the thing is, whenever he throws his strikes on the feet, if it's more than two or three shots, he usually leaves his head on the center line and he's going to be there for the straight punches of Rabotinov. I think the jab and the right hand of Rabotinov are going to give uh, Koji Takeda a lot of trouble. And I think the left hook around the right jab of Takeda, because Takeda's, like I said, very in and out, very light on the feet, you know, kind of herky-jerky, loves the check right hook, loves the straight left hand. Check right hook, left low kick. Check right hook, left low kick. Jab right hook, left low kick. 
constantly moving, switch back to orthodox, switch back southpaw, left body kick. He's going to be looking to kind of get the judges to be on his side because of the movement and all the activity it looks like he's doing. But on the feet, he's not very active. He's only active on the feet looking to initiate and complete the grappling exchanges, the takedowns, the body locks. You know, looking for inside and outside trips, looking to get to the body lock, shuck the opponent forward, have him give up the back, look to jump on the back and go for submissions. Maybe he goes on the back to go get a rear naked choke. He falls off to one side, grabs the arm bar, can use that to get into top position, transition into the mount, get the hooks in, you know, get the grapevines in, flatten the opponent out. The only way that Koji Takeda wins this fight is by initiating the grappling, by getting in the top position, and by being able to out grapple and possibly submit his opponent in Rabotinov. I don't think that's going to happen because I don't think Rabotinov is going to give up the position to uh, Koji Takeda in order to have that game plan work for him. I think a lot of this fight is going to play out on the feet. I think that Rabotinov's takedown defense and his management of range is going to make it very hard for Koji Takeda to close that distance and be able to initiate the game plan which he wants to initiate. So when it comes to the prediction, I think the straight punches and the technical striking of Rabotinov is going to give Koji Takeda a lot of trouble. I think Takeda is going to be running into a lot of shots on the feet. His defense is not that great. He keeps his chin up in the air, and he does get hit when the opponent throws multiple shot combinations at him. And I think we're going to see that from Rabotinov, the jab, the right hand, the left hook, off the low kicks like we saw him initiate in some of his other fights. Now against the southpaw, it's different. So the left hook's more going to come off of either the lead low kick from Koji Takeda or off of the lead jab. He's going to throw the jab, step out to the outside, and throw the left hook. So when it comes to the prediction for the fight, I have to go with Godzi Rabotinov. I just think that the technical striking is going to be too much for his opponent in Takeda. And I actually see Rabotinov getting a finish here just because of the lack of defense that Takeda showcases and the fact that he does get hit and he throws himself into the fire when it's on the feet because he's so confident once he gets into those grappling exchanges, the body locks, the takedowns, pushing the opponent up against the ring. And that's one thing you have to look out for is that this is going to be in a ring because it's in Japan with Ryzen. It's not going to be in a cage. So the ring is kind of a little bit different to move around in. And although Takeda is used to it, I just think that technically Rabotinov is the much better fighter. And I think we're going to see that exposed on the feet and Rabotinov is going to catch him and knock him out. So I'm going to go with Godzi Rabotinov to defeat Kyoji Takeda via a second round knockout. I think he catches him with a one, two wobbles him. Takeda tries to rush in, gets caught with the left hook and gets finished. So my pick is Godzi Rabotinov to defeat Koji Takeda via a second round knockout victory going one up for Bellator over Ryzen. All right, and up next is going to be a battle taking place in the bantamweight division. Representing Ryzen, you have Su Chul Kim, who comes into the fight with a record of 18-6-1, going up against former Bellator uh, featherweight champion, I believe, and bantamweight champion. Again, I could be wrong on that. No, I think he was uh, featherweight champion in Juan the Spaniard Archuleta, who comes back with a record of 26 victories and four losses. Um, this is an interesting fight. Su Chul Kim looks a lot older than he is. I mean, he looks like he's potentially could be in his 40s and he's just touching 30. He's about 31. But you can't let the look of him with the receding hairline stop you from looking at how good of a fighter he actually is. Su Chul Kim is kind of madness personified. 
Like he's going to run forward. He's going to push the pace. And immediately when the fight starts, he's coming at you looking to get on the pressure. He's looking to get in your face, land that big overhand right, the left hook, the uppercuts from inside the clinch, whether it's single collar or double collar. And he's really looking to put that pace and pressure on you. Uh, Juan Archuleta is the same way in certain aspects, but he's a lot more fleet-footed. He's a lot more light on the feet. He kind of dances around, but he can explode in on you with vicious power shots. Su Chul Kim is not better when it comes to the footwork and the movement aspect of this fight. And I think the footwork and movement of Juan Archuleta is really going to play a factor when it comes to this fight playing out throughout the entirety of it. I know it's in a ring like we just talked about. It's in Ryzen, you know. But looking at the fight, he's going to have to look out for the big right hand of Su Chul Kim. And he's going to have to look out for getting too close to Su Chul Kim up against the cage in the body locks, you know, in single collared, you know, tie clinch positions because Kim has that power that can put you out. He's got big power in his uppercuts, overhands, you know, and he's kind of wild. And Archuleta's wild as well, but he's a little bit better technically. He mixes up his footwork. He changes stances. You know, he can throw a one-two, switch southpaw, straight left hand, right hook, left uppercut, switch to orthodox off of the uppercut and land the left hook to land the right hand to switch back to southpaw off that hip load. In orthodox, one, two, right hook, switch to southpaw, right hook, straight left, left uppercut, right hook, switch back, orthodox, jab, uppercut. He's very TJ Dillashaw-esque, and that makes sense because he trains with Dillashaw and Sam Calavita out of the famous Sam Calavita garage. He has that footwork style of a Dillashaw, but he has more power than TJ. He's got the power to shut your lights out. Archuleta throws big power in everything that he throws, but he seems to mix it up a lot better than Su Chul Kim. When it comes to being an overall well-rounded mixed martial artist, I feel like you have to give that to the Bellator veteran in Juan Archuleta. I mean, he's 26-4, and four, 26 victories out of 30 fights, and he really can mix up his game very well. He has some trouble with grappling the uh, against very high-level grapplers, but against a guy in Kim, I think he can use his grappling, tie up uh, Su Chul Kim and push him up against the ropes. I think he can really try to wear on Kim, but at range, he's going to have to be weary of the pace and pressure of Kim because Kim's pressure is big, and every time he throws that right hand, he kind of overthrows himself, and Archuleta does the same thing. They're actually very similar in that regard where they'll throw so much power into their shots. More, well, Archuleta is more off of like the movement, like the Matador, and he'll step in and kind of overcommit on his shots, but that would work. That would be a big problem against a grappler or a wrestler, but Kim is looking to keep this on the feet, and he's looking to bang it out, and I think Archuleta is going to play that game, but he's going to have to play the Matador in this fight, and he's going to be picking him apart from the outside. I think we're going to see a lot of low kicks, change the stance, outside low kick, change stance, inside low kick. One, two, switch stance to southpaw, straight left hand, right hook. One, two, left shot to the body, right hook to the body from southpaw. He's got very good ability to mix up the body shots. And with Kim looking to put that pressure on, looking to, you know, get in his face and make it a dirty fight. The only way Su Chul Kim's going to win this fight is by making it dirty, making it nasty, pushing him back, getting in his face, putting that pressure on him. The best way to stop the pressure is to either land big power shots or work the body shots. I think we're going to see some body kicks from Archuleta. I think we're going to see that right hook to the body of Archuleta. Whenever Kim tries to close the distance, the jab, right hand to the body, left hook, right hook, right uppercut, left hook to the body. He really mixes up his body shots very well. And if you go back and watch the fight against Patchy Mix, 
Archuleta was able to really work the body, and that's what slowed down Patchy Mix in those championship rounds because early on he got taken down. He got out-controlled. He got out-grappled, almost got submitted, got dominated for the first two rounds, came back, showed his championship medal and his experience, and was able to work the longer the fight went. Now, in this fight, he's going to have to put the pace and pressure on a little bit more because I do not believe that this is a five-rounder. I could be wrong, but let me check that, actually, because I'm pretty sure this is just a three-round fight. Um, yeah, I believe it's a three-rounder, and then I think the main event is a five-rounder. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. So it's a three-round fight. So he's not going to have to worry about those championship rounds or anything like that. Um, so I feel like Archuleta can push the pace a little bit more, and Kim's going to be coming forward looking to put the pace on him. This is going to be a very exciting, very explosive fight. And I could see Kim catching Archuleta and hurting him because we have seen Archuleta get caught before. I mean, he got caught with a head kick from Rafion Stotts. I mean, he's been caught and clipped before. He's been knocked out, you know, but his chin usually does hold up, and he's able to put on veteran-style MMA performances and really mix up his game. The game of Archuleta is more well-rounded than Kim, and that's what's going to lean, or that's what's going to make me lean towards him when making a prediction. I think if Kim can make it dirty, he could catch Archuleta in close range with knees from the clinch, uppercuts, elbows over the top, and strikes off the break. Like that first round is going to be scary for Archuleta. It's going to be scary for Kim as well because I think Archuleta is really going to come out and look to push the pace and try to knock out Kim early on as well. But I think that the pace and pressure is immediately going to be coming from Kim. And that's something that Archuleta is going to have to look to fight off. And the best way to fight that off is either keep your distance and use the footwork, which Archuleta is very, very solid at. He definitely has the better movement, both forward, backward, and laterally. So I think his lateral movement is going to play a big factor in how this fight plays out. And then if he is able to close the distance in Kim, we're going to see Archuleta rip the body shots and come back up top with his big power as well. You know... Suchul Kim, if I can pull it up really quick, he's got six losses, but he's never been knocked out before. He's been submitted three times, gone to decision, and lost three times. Um, I don't think Archuleta is going to be the guy to knock out Kim, but I could potentially see it happening. But I'm going to go with the safe bet and say that Archuleta wins a decision. He's going to be the more clean, the more technical, the more crisp fighter. But if Kim's able to close the distance and really put it on him, I feel like if there's a knockout in this fight, it's going to come from Suchul Kim. I think that I don't think that Archuleta is going to be able to chin Kim, but I think Kim can catch him in that close range, in that clinch range, in boxing range. That's where Kim can catch Archuleta, and he has to be weary. But Archuleta is the much more well-rounded fighter. He's better technically. He mixes up his game. He changes his stances. He can use his combinations in mid-stance change and really mix up the full game of MMA. He can push uh, Suchul Kim up against the ropes, and you look to use his wrestling, tire him out. But in, when it comes to a prediction, I got to go with Archuleta. Uh, you know, he's fought at 145 pounds. This fight's going to be in the uh, bantamweight division. And I got to go with Archuleta. He's just a much, much more well-rounded fighter. So my pick is going to be Juan the Spaniard Archuleta to defeat Suchul Kim via a unanimous decision. All right, we're going to keep it moving up next in the flyweight division. You have Ryzen's Hiromasa Okigubo, or Okikubo, who comes into this fight with a record of 25 wins, six defeats, and two no contests. Going up against former UFC veteran, I believe he fought in Ryzen as well, but now he fights out of Bellator, former Bellator uh, bantamweight champion. 
Uh, I think, you know what? Yeah, it was Bantamweight champion because Bellator doesn't have a flyweight division in Kyoji Horiguchi, who comes back with a record of 30 victories and five defeats. This is a really solid fight. And actually, I forgot that Hiramasa Okigubo actually fought on the Ultimate Fighter. He was in the UFC. He was on the first ever Ultimate Fighter series to crown a challenger for Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson. And he went all the way to the finale until he lost to Tim Elliott. Elliott would obviously go on to face Demetrius Johnson for the flyweight title. Very interesting uh, Ultimate Fighter season. It had uh, Kai Carr France, Alexandre Pantoja, Tim Elliott, Hiramasa Okigubo. I mean, it had a lot of really solid competitors on that Ultimate Fighter series in that season in general. If you haven't watched it, definitely go back and check it out. But he was a very solid grappler, and that's still the same way that he approaches the game. He uses a lot of outside kicks or kicks from outside range. Um, doesn't really like to use much of his hands in terms of the striking, but a lot of the times he's using the kicking game, which we talked about earlier with Koji Takeda. He's using the kicking game to, you know, keep the opponent away from him and then use the kicks to close the distance, get into the range he wants to, and look to work the grappling. The best way for Hiramasa Okigubo to win this fight is going to be to take down Kyoji Horiguchi and submit him. But Horiguchi is not easy to take down. You can't find full-on takedown statistics because he's competed in multiple promotions. But in the UFC, he had a 55% takedown defense rate. Um, he got taken down and out-wrestled by Patchy Mix in Bellator. He's been taken down by other fighters as well. And I feel like his wrestling has maybe regressed a little bit in terms of the defense. But he's so fast on the feet and so explosive with his karate, taekwondo, in and out, mar traditional martial arts style. That's going to be very hard for Okigubo to Okikubo to close the distance and time the takedown attempts, even if it's on the forward momentum and movement of Kyoji Horiguchi. He's so explosive. He's so fast. He's a lot faster than Oki Kubo, but if Kubo gets him to the floor, it's going to be a problem for Horiguchi. I think if there's a submission in this fight, that's definitely going to come from the side of Hiromasa. He's going to look to take the opponent down. He's going to look to get into the top position. And when he gets in the top position, a lot of the times he's able to control you. He's able to tire you out. Doesn't give you a whole lot of space to work. Uses that shoulder pressure. Gets into the half guard. Gets out of the half guard to side control. Steps over into the mount. Will flatten you out if you give up your back. Looking for submissions. Looking for ground and pound. He'll work from the mount and ground and pound you as well. Like the ground is not a place that Horiguchi wants to be against Okikubo. He does have jujitsu. He does have submissions. Does Horiguchi. Like he can grapple. He can use his submissions. He's got four submission wins out of 30 victories. 15 by knockout or TKO, and then uh, 11 by decision. But in most of his wins come by way of KO, TKO. He's lost by submission one time, been knocked out twice, and then lost two decisions. One of those decisions coming to the likes of the, I guess, flyweight GOAT in MMA or in MMA in general. A lot of some of people's greatest fighter of all time in Demetrius Mighty Mouse Johnson. He's having a lot of success over there in one championship now, but... Horiguchi did fight Demetrius. He did hurt him at certain points. It was a competitive fight early on, but Mighty Mouse took over. When it comes to the overall compet or, uh, competition levels, I would definitely go out of my way to say that Horiguchi has fought the better fighters. He's fought the more experienced guys. He fought in the UFC. He fought some of the best of the best. The longer that MMA goes on, the more we notice that maybe the best fighters in certain weight classes aren't always in the UFC, but a lot of the times they do come 
from the premier mixed martial arts organization in the world. When you look at Hiramasa Okigubo, I mean, he's got a great record, 25 victories, six defeats, and two no contests. But out of his 25 victories, he's got six by submission and 18 by decision, only one win by way of knockout. When it comes to his losses, he's been knocked out twice, submitted twice, and gone to decision twice. So the triple header in terms of losses, he has been knocked out. He can be submitted. And although he only has six wins by way of submission on his record, he uses that grappling, the positional dominance, and really just looks to outwork you. He's very intelligent once it hits the floor. And I'm telling you, if he gets Kyoji Horiguchi down to the floor and gets in the top position, he can outwork him. He can grind him. He can get in the top position. We've seen Kyoji struggle with the wrestling of other opponents. And I think Oki Kubo is a guy who can really exploit that wrestling deficiency in terms of takedown defense and grappling defense that we've seen from Kyoji Horiguchi. But as long as this fight stays on the feet, Hiro Masa's in a world of trouble, and that's really what you have to look at. The speed, the stance changes, the angle changes, the explosiveness of Horiguchi, the kicking game, the constant in and out and lateral movement. I mean, he's literally so light on the feet. It's like he's moving on a cloud, and he can explode into your face with huge shots. I mean, the guy has a lot of power for 125 pounds, or 135 pounds, and man, the guy is a monster, and I don't think Hiromasa can hang with him on the feet. I think oh, Horiguchi's power, his speed, his movement, the awkward angles he comes at you from, that's going to be too much for Hiromasa, and when it comes to the prediction, although I think we can see Oki Kubo use his grappling, get in the top position, outwork and tire out Horiguchi throughout the fight, I think at some point Horiguchi's going to crack the chin of Oki Kubo and he's going to knock him out. He's been knocked out twice before. A third of his losses come by way of KO-TKO, even though he's only lost six times, 25 wins out of 31 fights. But I think the speed, power, technical ability, and explosiveness of Kyoji Horiguchi is going to be too much. I was a big fan of Horiguchi when he was in the UFC, and I'm a big fan of Horiguchi in general. I mean, I know he lost that fight to Sergio Pettis for the Bantamweight Championship, but he was dominating three rounds to zero going into that fourth where he eventually got ducked that high kick and ran right into the spinning back fist as he tried to move away laterally. Good on Sergio Pettis, but for the majority of that fight, Kyoji was dominating him with the grappling, with the wrestling, the striking on the feet, and he was just able to outwork him in every single round up until that finish. I think we're going to see Hiro Masa have some success, but as long as this fight's on the feet, Hiro is going to get chinned by Kyoji Horiguchi. So my pick is going to be a Kyoji Horiguchi to defeat Hiromasa Ogikubo via a second round knockout. I think he's going to catch him on the chin, drop him, and put him away. We've seen him put away before. If anybody in the flyweight division is going to be able to put away Ogikubo again, I think it's going to be Kyoji Horiguchi. So give me another win for Ryzen against Bellator. Or I'm sorry, another win for Bellator against Ryzen with Kyoji Horiguchi over Hiromasa Ogikubo via a second-round knockout. All right, and now for the co-main event of the evening in the featherweight division, you have Kleber Koike Erbst, or Erbst. I think it's Kleber Koike. That's usually how they say his name. He's 31-5 and five and won 31 victories, five defeats, and one no contest, going up against the Bellator featherweight champion, longtime Bellator veteran, with wins over the likes of Michael Chandler, uh, Benson Henderson, I believe. I mean, he's beat just about everybody in Bellator's lightweight and featherweight divisions in Patricio Pitbull. He comes in with a record of 34 victories and five defeats. 
This is a really close fight, and it's very interesting overall. We've talked a lot about, like, striker versus grappler and stuff like that already on the podcast with how a lot of these fights are, if somebody can get it to the ground, they can win. If the fight stays on the feet, it more goes in the direction of the other fighter. And that's kind of the same thing here. Although I know that Patricio Pitbull has submissions, he's got a really solid guillotine. He's been submitted before, but he does have good grappling and good submissions. As long as he keeps it on the feet against Kleber Koike, he's going to be able to get the job done for the most part. But if he goes to the ground at any point, Koike can lock up a submission in the blink of an eye. And I don't know, I didn't know a ton about these Ryzen fighters before going into this breakdown. So a lot of this stuff is fresh in my mind and I just learned about it going into this breakdown. Koiki is a phenomenal jujitsu artist. And if you give him an inch, he will take a mile. If Patricio Pitbull, you know, is lackadaisical and leaves his arm out there, leaves his neck out there, goes into a lazy position on the top, Koiki's going to submit Pitbull. He 100% is going to submit him. And I know you're going to say, well, competition level, Bellator this, Bellator that. And yes, we talk about it. Like the better competition is going to come out of Bellator. It's going to come out of the UFC. It's going to come out of the big, the best organizations in the world. But you cannot sleep on Kleber Koike Erbst here or Kleber Koike. I think it's Koike Koike. If I'm saying his name wrong, then you can correct me in the comments or in a message or whatever. But Kleber Koike, man, I mean, the guy can lock up submissions. He can... Grab a triangle from the bottom position, throw his legs up, get you in an arm lock while you're in the triangle. He can transition from arm bars to triangles like butter. He can get in the top position, change positions, changes submission attempts, chain submission attempts together. I mean, the guy is a phenom on the floor, just like the guy we're going to talk about in the main event with Roberto Satoshi de Souza. He can lock up submissions when you think you're safe and you're really not. I mean, if you look at Koiki out of 31 victories, I'm going to pull this up really quick. Out of 31 victories, 27 of them come by way of submission, two by KO, TKO. So he's got 29 finishes out of 31 victories, and 27 come by way of sub. I mean, if you look at his record, he's got – we'll just go off like his most recent fights. We'll go off the last five fights. Submission, triangle choke, second round. Submission, face crank, first round. Rear naked choke, second round. Triangle choke, second round. Triangle choke, second round. Bravo choke or Darsh choke in the first round. Armbar submission. He lost a decision to Mateus Gamrot. His last loss came to G Mateus Gamrot at KSW 46. After that, he went on a seven-fight win streak, right? One, two, three. Let me make sure I got that right. Yeah, seven-fight win streak. So his last loss, December of 2018, the guy hasn't lost in almost four, or I'm sorry, he hasn't lost in over four years. The guy is a monster. And losing to a guy like Gamrot, who just lost to Vanille Dariush, but has wins over the likes of Jeremy Stevens, uh, Armin Sarukian, a bunch of good guys on the roster, uh, Diego Ferreira, the guy is a monster. And he's a very, very solid jiu-jitsu artist. And that's not something that Patricio is going to be able to play around with. The only way I could see Patricio Pitbull getting a submission is by hurting 
Kleber Koike with a shot on the feet and then grabbing his neck because he loves to attack the guillotine. Maybe he rocks him, stuns him, and grabs a guillotine. But if a submission is going to come in this fight, it's 100% coming from the, slide, the side of Kleber Koike. 31 victories, 29 finishes, 27 wins by way of submission. He is so elusive, so effective. He attacks, attacks, attacks. The minute you hit the floor, the guy's going for submissions, playing the Ashigarami game working in the uh, X guard, looking to lock up arm bars, looking to lock up triangles, looking to grab your neck, working from the guard, effective off of his back. He's even really good at talking trash to his opponent as he locks in those submissions. He's a big talker, and that's what I've seen from these highlights, is even when he's in a dominant position, he'll be talking to the cameraman, he'll be talking to the crowd, he'll be talking to the opponent. The guy's kind of a showman in a certain aspect, and Patricio Pitbull's in for a tough fight. On the feet, though, I just feel like Patricio's too explosive for him. But sometimes he can be so inactive at certain points that he can like lose fights just based on inactivity because he's really traditional style, kind of like a Machida karate in and out style. Find a way to explode and then boom, explode with a big shot, the right hand. Usually the right hand comes over the jab of the opponent. That's one of the best combinations that Pitbull has, and then he'll follow it up with the left hook. I could see him waiting for the jab of Koiki coming over the top, landing the right hand, coming back with a left hook. That's his big combination, the one-two. The right hand over the top, slip and land in the overhand. The left hook behind the overhand right. Like the power, explosiveness, the technical ability on the feet and the punches and the kicks are going to come from the side of Patricio Pitbull, the Bellator featherweight champion. But Kleber Koike is going to have the advantage in the jiu-jitsu. He's going to have the advantage in the grappling. It's kind of like the fight we talked about before with Hiromasa Okikubo, Kyoji Horiguchi. Similar to the fight we talked about in the beginning with Koji Takeda and Godzi Urabadanov. Like these guys, it's a lot of grappler versus striker. And I think the striking of Patricio is going to be a little too much for Koike. I mean, you look at his losses... Like we already talked about, he has only lost. He's never been knocked out before. He's gone to decision three times, been or been submitted one time, but he's never been knocked out. If anybody can do it, I think it is Patricio Pitbull. But I don't know, man. I could definitely see Kleber Koike finding a way to lock up a submission on Patricio, uh, on Patricio and submitting him. I could one hundred percent see it, and I don't even know much about this guy until I did the breakdown today. But he looks for submissions in such crazy angles, such crazy ability to lock up these submissions. I mean, like I said, 27 subs out of 31 wins. The guy's dangerous. And it's not an easy fight for the champion in Patricio. But, oh, it's 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 a hard fight. Like, in terms of the predictions, I would go, I'm like 60-40 on this one. I'm not like super heavy on one side because, like I said, I could see Kleber Koike getting a submission and having Patricio just being a little bit lazy and leaving himself open. And at the same time, I could see Patricio catching Kleber Koike with a big shot on the feet. But at the same time, Koike's never been knocked out. You know what? I'm going to go with the upset. Originally, I was going with Pitbull. But I'm going to go with the upset and Kleber Koike to find a submission and submit the champion and Patricio Pitbull. I'm going to say that Patricio explodes on him. He jumps on him, like hurts him, but Koike kind of plays possum and falls to his back. Uh, Pitbull jumps on him, looks to get a finish, and leaves himself open, gives up his back, and gets submitted with a rear naked choke. I'm going to go with Kleber Koike to defeat Patricio Pitbull via a second round rear naked choke submission. I think that submission game is very, very troubling. And I know a lot of people are going to go with Pitbull. And originally I was going with Pitbull as well because the striking, the power, and the explosiveness. 
But going off the fact that Koike's never been knocked out, I feel like we're going to get into grappling exchanges at a certain point. And at that point, that's when Koike's going to lock up a submission. So clever Koike to defeat Patricio Pitbull in a big upset via submission in the second round due to a rear naked choke. All right, and now we get to the main event of the evening in the lightweight division. You have a battle between Roberto Satoshi de Sousa, who comes into the fight with a record of 14 victories and one defeat, with all 14 of his wins coming by way of finish. And on the other side, you have the former Bellator featherweight champion and Bellator veteran, even at such a young age, in A.J. McGee, who comes into the fight with a record of 19 victories and one defeat. This is a very interesting matchup, and again, it's going to continue the trend of striker versus grappler. Even though both of these guys have good grappling, I would say McGee is a better wrestler with better takedown offense and ability to be aggressive with his wrestling, while Roberto Satoshi de Sousa is a very good wrestler in his own right, but he's more experienced with the, you know, working off of your back, X-guard, Looking to sweep for leg locks, sweep from rubber guard, or not rubber guard, sweep from the butterfly guard, and looking to use sweeps to set up positional changes and submission attempts. The more dangerous fighter on the floor is definitely going to be Roberto Satoshi de Sousa. He also has good striking. He can close the distance with good punches. And I think out of all the fighters we've talked about who are mainly grapplers but strike on the feet as well on this card, I think Roberto Satoshi de Sousa is the most dangerous striker on the feet throughout this card who also has a high-level extensive wrestling and Brazilian jiu-jitsu game. So he's the most effective, but on the feet against AJ McGee is not really a place you're going to want to be. McGee obviously only lost one time via decision to Patricio Pitbull, who we already talked about, and he also defeated Patricio Pitbull in their first fight after rocking him with a high kick and then locking him up in a guillotine, which is Patricio's famous submission. He was able to submit him. They fought again, and he lost via unanimous decision. But a lot of people believe that McGee did enough to win that fight, I believe. I think it came down to the last round, and most people thought McGee did enough to reclaim, retain his title, but it isn't what happened. And that's not how it went down. Roberto Satoshi de Sousa, he does use takedowns. He's very good at timing the opponent's aggressiveness with strikes and their lunges to get in on the hips, take the opponent down, and work from the top position. Look to set up submissions, look to get into the mount, take the back, look to land ground and pound and fall off to arm bars, fall off to triangles. Kind of like Kleber Koike, who we talked about earlier. Uh, pretty similar game, but I would say the more dangerous fighter in terms of submissions would be Roberto Satoshi de Sousa, but it's pretty close. And then the more overall well-rounded and dangerous mixed martial artist, like I said, out of all the high-level grapplers on this card where it's mainly uh, high-level grappler versus mainly high-level striker for most of these matchups, I would say Roberto Satoshi de Sousa is the most well-rounded fighter out of the Ryzen fighters on this list. You look at his record, I mean, like I said, he's got 14 wins all coming by way of finish. He got knocked out once by... Johnny Case, I believe, got timed with an uppercut shooting a takedown because he kind of just left himself wide open on the takedown attempt. He's pretty wild with the way he goes into his takedowns, but he's also got good timing, so it's not always wild, but can be wild at certain points. But 10 submissions out of 14 wins, 4 KOTKOs, 
never been submitted, never gone to decision. He's kind of a killer be killed, but most of his success, most of his bread and butter come with the grappling, come with the submission game. You know, you don't want him off of his back. You don't want him on top of you. You don't want him in the mount. You don't want him in half guard. You don't want him in side control. You don't want him on your back with the hooks in where he can fall off and get an arm bar, where he can roll into a triangle choke, where he can lock up your neck in a front headlock in another position, like off of a sprawl. He's a dangerous guy on the mat. And I know McGee is a good wrestler. He has good takedown timing. He, he takes all of almost all of his opponents down. He's got really good striking, good high kicks, knocked out opponents with high kicks, good timing with the overhand left and the straight left hand, right hook to straight left, right hook to overhand left, left hand to left high kick. I mean, he's he's a very well-rounded mixed martial artist, is McGee, and it shows by his record. I mean, 19-1, and one, the guy isn't somebody to take lightly, and he's lost only once via decision in a fight where a lot of people thought he could have beat Pitbull in the rematch after he already submitted him. The first time, his nickname is The Mercenary. So AJ, The Mercenary McGee. Um, his last fight, he got a unanimous decision win over Spike Carlisle. Before that, um, lost the unanimous decision to Patricio Pitbull. Before that, got the guillotine choke submission over Pitbull in their first fight. But he actually rocked him with a left high kick and then locked up a submission. Against Darian Caldwell, he had him in kind of like the, the full Nelson or the DDT-style position and was able to lock up the body triangle from his back with the opponent in his guard and use that to submit his opponent in the first round. It's a neck crank, um, kind of like a full Nelson style position, DDT style position. Before that, he got an armbar submission over Derek Campos. He got a knockout in the first round over Georgie Carhani and unanimous decision over Pat Curran and a conda choke submission over Daniel Crawford knockout in the first round over John Teixeira. Out of his 19 victories, he's got 13 wins coming by way of finish and six by decision. His only loss coming by way of decision, the mercenary's never been finished, whether it's on the ground or on the feet. But against a guy in Roberto Satoshi de Sousa, who is all finishes and kill or be killed and only lost via knockout one time, I think this is a dangerous fight for AJ McGee. I think there is opportunity where McGee could catch Roberto coming in on one of his sloppy takedown attempts catch him with an uppercut, maybe like Johnny Case, catch him with a knee as he comes in, or, you know, just catching him with a straight shot because he is very long, very rangy is McGee. He really gets full extension on his left hand, whether it's straight or if he loops it with an overhand after throwing the right hook to get the outside foot. Um, it's a very tough matchup to call. It's very difficult to make a prediction for this one because I feel like Roberto's Satoshi de Sousa may be getting a little bit. I feel like McGee might be taking him not as serious as he should. McGee's very wild. He's very reckless. Like he comes in and looks for the finish right away. And sometimes he throws himself off balance with his striking. He'll overthrow. You know, sometimes he'll get knocked off balance. He'll shoot takedowns from awkward angles. And at some points, McGee can look kind of sloppy. I know he's a prodigy. I know that he has a lot of hype behind him, and he's really lived up to it for the most part. But a lot of the times he's throwing everything with a lot of power, a lot of intention, but he doesn't look at the really important fundamentals in terms of staying balanced, not overthrowing, maybe overstepping with a combination. And if you do that against Roberto Satoshi de Souza, if you overthrow a shot and you're just looping it, even with that reach advantage, I feel like Satoshi can time AJ McGee throwing his shots and get in on the hips and take him down. Now, McGee's going to be attacking the front the front headlock. He's going to be attacking the chokes. But I really think this is an opportunity for Roberto Satoshi de Sousa to shine. I think the grappling, the submission aspects, 
And, you know, his ability to not be afraid to strike on the feet. I know he's been knocked out before, but I feel like Roberto Satoshi de Sousa is going to get this one done, man. I really like his chances here against McGee. I think it's just the aggressiveness of McGee that worries me. Like, yeah, he's got a ton of finishes. Yeah, he puts away a lot of his opponents, man. But Roberto Satoshi de Sousa is so effective off of his back with the triangles, locking up submission attempts at weird angles, arm bars, Darce chokes, rear naked chokes, triangle chokes. He can lock up just about any submission you want. And with a long, rangy guy and lanky guy like McGee, you know, if he leaves his arm out there, he can get caught in an arm bar. Satoshi can, you know, transition the arm bar into a triangle and then use a triangle arm bar. He can go to a triangle transition out into an arm bar. He can have an arm bar. Uh, McGee could try to pull out. He could work his legs, kick his legs out, get in the back, uh, back control, get his hooks in and look for a rear naked choke. In the scrambles in this fight, I think Satoshi De Sousa is very, very dangerous. I think he can definitely knock out McGee. Or I, mean, I think McGee can definitely knock out Satoshi. He's been caught before. I think McGee's length can give him some trouble. He could catch him in a front choke if he hurts him. The high kicks are going to be a problem. But even throwing kicks against a guy in Sousa is going to leave you open for those takedown attempts. And I think it would be ill-advised for McGee to jump the guillotine in terms of takedown defense because if... Satoshi De Sousa gets out of the uh, or um, oh my god! If Satoshi De Sousa gets out of the guillotine, it's going to leave McGee in a world that he doesn't want to be in. And I know he's a wrestler. I know he's got good submissions. I know he's got good grappling. And a lot of the times, the wrestler beats the jujitsu artist. But with the scrambling ability and the extensive jujitsu background of Satoshi, I think we're going to have an opera uh, a certain moment in this fight where McGee doesn't respect the submission game of Satoshi De Sousa and leaves his arm out there, gets time, gets caught in an arm bar, Satoshi De Sousa transitions into a triangle, and he submits AJ McGee. I know a lot of people are going to be going with McGee. He's the popular pick. The guy has been almost unstoppable for his entire career. Even in the loss he has, a lot of people thought he won. But the submission and jiu-jitsu game of Roberto De Sousa and his ability to be comfortable on the feet and the long length of McGee in terms of the, you know, leaving his limbs out there in terms of grappling scrambles, I'm really, really going to side. I got to side with Satoshi De Souza. I think he's going to submit AJ McGee. So my pick is Roberto Satoshi De Souza to defeat AJ the Mercenary McGee, handing him his second professional loss in MMA, but this time a concrete loss via a third or a second round triangle armbar submission. He's going to lock him in a triangle. AJ's going to get caught in a scramble, and he's going to grab that armbar and crank it and submit him. So my pick is for Ryzen. The first time or the second time on the card, we've got two picks for Ryzen, three picks for Bellator So throughout the entire main card. And I'm going with Roberto Satoshi de Souza to improve to 15-1 and one with another finish. Defeating AJ the Mercenary McGee via a second round triangle armbar submission. All right, that's going to be it for my preview, predictions, and an analysis of the Bellator versus Ryzen New Year's Eve card. Like I said, we haven't done any Bellator predictions on the podcast before. If this is something you guys are interested in, please let me know whether it's on YouTube, whether it's a message on Anchor, 
whether it's contacting me through email, sending a donation through PayPal. If you guys like the Bellator slash Ryzen breakdowns, let me know and I will continue to break down these cards. Since we don't have a UFC card for another three weeks, this is the perfect opportunity to continue to pump out content for you guys when it comes to what I believe to be the best mixed martial arts breakdown channel and podcast on the entire internet. You could support the podcast through, you know, PayPal. I'll leave the link to my PayPal address in the description of this podcast. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, which is always going to help. More reviews, more positive reviews is going to attract more eyes and more ears to listen to the Touch Em Up podcast. Um, you can download this episode or find my episodes on any podcast platform, guys. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, on YouTube. These predictions will be uploaded to YouTube tonight before the end of the night. Thank you for all of your support, and I appreciate every single one of you. This has been Bellator versus Ryzen, preview predictions and analysis. I'm your host, Double M, and I'm out.